talking to Russ Ramsey made sense from every angle. As I thought about the persons with whom I could speak with this podcast and really this entire line of questioning, Russ Ramsey was an obvious choice. He's involved in the creative process from every possible way and can speak to the subject from all perspectives. He's also a longtime friend whose handling of the biblical text is one I would trust. As a practitioner, Russ is an excellent author and writer who is currently preparing his fifth book to come to market. As a pastor, he not only shapes sermons each week for his Presbyterian church plant in Cool Springs, which is just south of Nashville, but he also shepherds his congregation toward those same sort of endeavors that we're interested in discussing. Even more than that, Russ has a lifelong passion for art and beauty. And if you follow him on social media, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For quite some time, Russ has been publishing Art Wednesdays, as he calls it, a simple infusion of beauty into our social feeds in the form of hourly posts that showcase meaningful works and their context. That's also the subject of his forthcoming book. On this episode of Call It Good, I sat down with Russ to explore the conversation from each of these perspectives. Russ reminds us how some of history's greatest artists struggled with their own work, and how he's learned to apply the idea of creating in the image of a creator to his own life, work, and congregation. Stay tuned for our conversation with author and pastor Russ Ramsey. Hello, and welcome back to another swashbuckling episode. I'm not sure why I just chose that adjective, but I like that adjective. I'm here with my friend, Russ Ramsey. Russ, how are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. Are you swashbuckling? Uh, No, I haven't in a while. Do you even know what that means? It's only pirates. Yeah, that's the thing is I I just haven't haven't had a lot of experience pirating. (laughs) (laughs) I realized the other day I used on an episode, I was like, I'm, I'm thrilled to have, or like or exciting episode, whatever I used, I was like, Oh, it'd be fun to try different adjectives, but you kind of run out (laughs) anyway. Um, I love it. I love it. Russ, we're happy to have you on the episode today. And, and just as a primer, maybe for those who, who, um, who are just jumping in, um, would love to get them a sense of where we're going. Um, if you, if you are new to the podcast, we're looking at this idea that we're all created in the image of a creator and that a key part of that process that maybe remains a little unfamiliar to many of us is this idea of a God who also doesn't just create, but a God who also seems to step back and reflect upon and to look at with appreciation and, and calling something good or whole and, and like, how do we participate in that? Russ, I'm thrilled to have you on today, not just because we're friends and have been for several years, but you sit at this wonderful intersection of you're currently a pastor of, can you tell us where you're at? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville at the Cool Springs location. So we're a multi-site church and I'm the, the lead pastor of the location in Cool Springs, which is just south of town. Okay. And I mean, clearly you're also, you have theological thoughts about these things. You're a practitioner yourself, like you've written several mm-hmm. books 
And you also have what those who follow you online will recognize as Art Wednesday. Yeah, I'd love to give you a chance to tell us, uh, like, can you kind of fill in some of these blanks here in terms of mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like what Art Wednesday is and, and, and why Art Wednesday? Yeah. So, um, so I, uh, j- just biographically, I, I, I grew up, um, as a kid who, who gravitated more toward the arts than, than sports. And so I was part of art classes, the national art society, uh, art honor society in high school. And I was never a good, um, artist in the sense of, you know, like a, I was never a good painter or a good sculptor, but I was fascinated with the creative process and, I had a teacher uh, in high school who gave our art class the advice uh, that I've taken, that I still carry with me to this day. And she said, if you find um, an artist that you connect with, just pay attention to them for the rest of your life. And you'll, you'll become kind of an expert on them if you just, you know, pay attention to them, read articles about them, read books about them. When you go to an art museum, go see their work. Uh, they'll introduce you to their friends, to their inspiration, to their to, uh, to the people who were painting at the same time, um, and uh, so it it put in me a just kind of a lifelong love of art, and so I've always been drawn to it. And I and I find um, being a being a person who spends time with art has been really really good for my soul. So fast forward to the invention of social media, where it can be not good for your soul. <laughs> um, I, I just noticed that, uh, and, and probably what a lot of people, probably what everybody notices is that it can be, it can be, it can do violence to your heart to just spend five minutes reading through your Twitter feed. Um, mm. that, that there's so much negativity there. And so I wanted to inject some beauty into the social media stream. And so I thought, well, I'll just start posting some art and maybe make a comment or two about, about a painting. And it kind of coalesced into this idea of, of Art Wednesday, which is every Wednesday, uh, I will post over the course of the day from about 7.30 in the morning till 7 at night, I'll post about nine paintings uh, or pictures of sculptures or, or something uh, that are connected to each other in some way or another. So um I might do all paintings that have been stolen and are now missing or uh, (laughs) paintings by a particular artist that I think you should know. Um, The most recent Art Wednesday uh, was uh, comparing Rembrandt's from when he was in his 20s to when he was in his 50s and 60s and just kind of seeing the evolution of an artist over time, um, which is all just fascinating to me. So I, I do that every Wednesday uh, and I do it just on my social media feeds. It's not on a blog or anything. It's just on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and the caption is just a little, you know, another sentence or two. And by the end of the day, um, I've given you kind of a, uh, a little reflection piece uh, in the content, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, captions uh, along with, you know, these things to look at. And it's been really a fun exercise for me. Um, and a great way to continue to to learn about art, to take art in, um, and also introduce, you know, if, if, ironically, I'm now doing what my art teacher said artists would do for me. And that is, she said, they'll introduce you to their friends. And now I'm in a position where I feel like I'm introducing people to uh, painters that have become, you know, friends of mine. So um, so that's the Art Wednesday thing. And, and it's a big part of my, uh, big part of who I am on online, but it's also just a part of who I am in general. Um, I, I just, I, I love it. I love it. 
That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I enjoy being on this side of it. It feels like a reprieve from yeah. from everything else that that comes across, you know, the feeds, especially on Twitter, mm-hmm. where things can be so combative and, and two dimensional. And then here's this. Oh, yeah, here's something completely outside of the <laughs> current topic, the current hot take, etc. And um, yeah, well, I'm I'm glad I wanted to ask about that. And and you said at this nexus where I wanted to get your thoughts on this whole idea around calling it good, around mm-hmm. our participation, uh, our our spirit led and informed participation or co creation with God in the world today um, through a couple lenses. And and I, I just wonder f- for you, I'd love to get maybe some theological reflection, like what that means for you as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I know you want to shepherd yeah. this in people, their, their calling and the creative calling. Um, but then also I know that, you know, you with your art history too, would also maybe have some things to say from that world um, mm-hmm. in that vein. So I, I'd love to start on the theological side yeah. and, and just really what that means. Like, yeah. what does it mean for you to create as a creator and specifically that part of it? Does that feel accurate to you as a hypothesis that maybe that's a little unexplored um, in terms of our understanding of it? Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think, and I know there, there are um, a lot of folks that probably will will be a part of this podcast that you're doing, um, who would be quick to say that it's, it's, it's inaccurate to call somebody a creative as a way of distinguishing them from others, because we're all creative people. That's part of being made in the image of a creator. Uh, it's one of the first characteristics of God that we get is that he makes. Um, and so, you know, and not, not only does he make things, but, but he makes things, uh, with flourish, you know, so it's not just, um, you know, there was a river running through these two banks. And so he made a bridge. It's like, well, he made a, he made a glorious bridge, you know, and, 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 uh, he made peacocks and, and octopuses and, you know, or octopi, I guess they are. And, uh, you know, so, so as a pastor, that, that's something I don't want to merely encourage people to be creative. I want them to understand that they are creative. And, um, and so there are a couple of ways that I try to go about that, even as a, as a, as a pastor, when I think about sermon work and that, um, is when I, when I preach, I always have a, a work of art on the screen, uh, that relates to the text. I would say 90% of the time, I don't even mention it. It's just there. Uh, with with kind of the basic details of the artist, the year, um, the name, you know, of it. Uh, but I keep art in front of people uh, as a way of keeping um, keeping things that have stood the test of time uh, and been regarded by humanity as a whole <laughs> as being um, significant. I try to keep those things in front of people. But I also try to, as a communicator, I try to spend time um, engaging with the imagination. Cause I think that's a big part of what it means to be creative people is that we imagine and that our imagination can take us to a lot of places. Um, and it's easy to go through life, uh, just sort of consuming social media, consuming entertainment, consuming, consuming, um, but not really exploring having our imaginations engaged, you know, we can, we can just give people all the information. And sometimes as a preacher, I like to, 
I like to give the information, but I also like to ask questions or maybe unfold something in a way in scripture that, that will engage, uh, will make people start to wonder. Um, because I think we were created to wonder, you know, we, we were made to be people who, um, there's a reason why we give a lot of our disposable income and vacation days to driving to Arizona to stand at the edge of a big Canyon. Mm. Um, and that is because there is something glorious that we instinctively want to be in the presence of. And so we make sacrifices to do that. And, um, so, so I try to engage people's imagination, I think, and I try to tell a lot of story because I think story is, uh, is a Trojan horse for truth. You know, you can, you can slip a lot past the gates of our defenses, Mm -hmm. uh, in the form of a good story. Uh, and that's how Jesus taught primarily, you know, he, he, you know, he has some extensive sermons, but even those sermons have, have parables in them, but primarily he was a parable teller. Uh, and, uh, and so I try to do that because I feel like those are, those are basic elements to creativity, uh, is imagination, story, wonder, um, you know, being led to conclusions, but not always being given the conclusions, uh, and giving people the opportunity to turn the light switch on themselves, uh, is, is something that is, I love it when it works, (laughs) you know, I love it when I have a moment in a sermon where I can see the light go on for people and they say, Oh, Oh, Mm. I never even thought about that. Um, but that, you know, but the story came together and now I see the truth because I see the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 What, what does that mean for you? If as, as a pastor, you know, tasked with shepherding people to understand their, their identity, that part of their identity and calling in Genesis one, mm-hmm. like, like what does that mean for you to apply that idea of, okay, we don't just, create we create with flourish and and not just that but then there does seem to be this sort of recognition of what what is created is a good thing and that word really meaning more than just oh yeah that's good but like good is in like the way it was intended to be mm-hmm. um yeah. like how do we participate in that and what does that mean for us to like reflect on our own creation, whatever that is. Like we're yeah. all creative, so it doesn't have to be a painting, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of it is understanding that what we do matters. Um, you know, that, so when, whether your whether your creative expression is with food or with raising a toddler or writing or, you know, managing a spreadsheet or managing people, there's so much creativity involved in all of that. And part of what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to get good at it. You know, one of my, one of my foundational um, beliefs is that mastery leads to joy, that the greater, the better you are at something, the more you like it. Mm -hmm. So when you pick up a guitar for the first time and you've never played a chord in your life, it feels like an alien thing, you know, and despair sets in because you're like, how in the world (laughs) do people change chords, let alone play one chord clearly. Uh, but in, in no time, people pick that up and then, and then they get better. And if they want to, if they apply themselves, they can get better and better and learn the fundamentals and all that. But, but, and the same would apply to playing basketball or golf or cooking or, or you name it, you know, painting where when you start to understand 
the basic fundamentals of a craft and you start to get some mastery under your belt, um, it's not just that you get more efficient. You may not get more efficient, but you love it more. Um, you and you're in the freedom to be able to do more uh, increases as well. And so, you, you know, we talk about that at church with people's work, but we also do it. We have a lot of kids in our church. And so our children's ministry is the kind of thing where we're really kind of focusing on. Um, yeah, we want them to get an understanding of the Bible. We want them to get good biblical literacy. We also recognize that they're squirmy little human beings who um, <laughs> need to move, and that's part of how God made them. And so as a part of our ministry to families, our kids move, uh, you know, during <laughs> during the kids' ministry, and they use their voices, and they participate in things, and they, uh, they play, um, and that there's a balance of all that because we're trying to we're trying to look at them as whole people, and I think that's kind of a little uh, example in in miniature, no pun intended, of <laughs> of what we want for for everybody is to say, you know, you matter. What you do matters. Um, God, you know, in His Word, He tells us in Ephesians three that He does exceedingly more than we ask or think, uh, and so I think that's a fair thing to presume. Is that you know, if I say, Lord, I I I want to, you know. I want to be used by you with this gift that I have. I think it's fair to presume that he'll do more uh, than we know. Uh, and that that's kind of his operating, his, his way of operating, you know? Mm. Um, so th those are some of the things I, I, I try to make, make wonder and taking people seriously, taking people intellectually, seriously, vocationally, seriously. Um, and all that as, as part of the tone that we set for church where, you know, where people gather corporately to worship uh, together for that to be a place where people feel like they're, they're treated as whole people, that their imaginations are engaged, that their minds are engaged, that their bodies are engaged um, is all part of, of, because I think if that's happening, uh, then there's a, then the connection is much easier to make that, mm. that my life is a creative endeavor and as a creative endeavor, God works through it. And he also, for the sake of others, but also for, for the sake of my own knowledge of him. And uh, as, as creative people, uh, I want to engage the whole person in, in the process. And I feel like if that's part of the rhythm of what we do uh, when we gather for corporate worship at church, that that's practice in, in learning how to live as a, as a, person who's fully engaged in, in other areas of life as well. Hmm. I, I want, I want to focus here because like you, I love your emphasis on, look, I want to treat everyone and let them know and have them believe too that they matter and what they make matters. But that can be really difficult to mm -hmm. like buy into personally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, so this idea of participating and making good, things and not like you know again that word good comes loaded with a lot of preconceived ideas mm -hmm. but but like it can also it could often feel like what i have to offer yeah i know russ everything matters but what i have to offer matters less than mm -hmm. the next person like as a practitioner yourself like do you wrestle with that in some ways maybe sermon prep or writing books or yeah um, 
I mean, I think everybody does. You know, I think everybody wrestles with with the feeling of, I think we I think we feel two things simultaneously. I think we feel that our work is better than a lot, and we yeah. also feel like our work is is um, shamefully inferior. Uh, the good news about that is we're not alone. Van Gogh felt that way. Um, Van Gogh, uh, he, when when you spend any time reading about his uh, his ideas, it, it can be easy to turn him into this romantic, tragic figure. But he he and he is. Uh, but he wanted he wanted to be famous. Uh, he wanted to be a rec- globally recognized artist, and it mm. pained him that he wasn't. But when he would get any recognition at all, he would get angry at people who would compliment him publicly and he would <laughs> tell them, don't do that. Stop doing that. It's you're so wrong, you know? And, um, to, to the point where, you know, his part of the tragedy of his life is he only sold one painting while he was alive, mm. just one. Uh, it's called the red vineyard. It's in Moscow right now. And it's, um, um, it's, it's an amazing painting. Uh, but it's not one that, he's most known for it's not starry night you know it's yeah. not irises or sunflowers it's it's this red vineyard painting and um and it was bought by a, a sister of a friend um so one of his friend's sisters bought the painting um and it, because it it was a rare it it was one of his pa- paintings that was exhibited at an art show which was also rare hmm. uh and uh so you know he he lived his whole life wanting to break through but not having any, not having a lot of confidence in his um, ability to punch through commercially, uh, even though he also worked in kind of the commercial art world, he understood uh, how it worked. His brother was an art dealer. He worked for an art dealer for a while and, and, uh, but he, yeah, he, he wrestled with that his whole life and he hated uh, Starry Night. <laughs> <laughs> He hated it. He he wrote about how it w- it was em- embarrassing for him, and he would never do that again. Oh, and my. it's funny because when you look at Starry Night, you may feel like all of Van Gogh's paintings are like that, and they're not. Um, the, the, some of the you know the exaggerated brushwork is there, but that swirling cloud, uh, stars and clouds and all that at night, um, that's the only place where he does that. And the reason he did it was because paintings like that were selling at the time. Uh, paintings that had kind of that abstract, exaggerated thing, and he, and so that was what he did in the hopes that maybe, maybe this would sell, maybe somebody would buy this, uh, and so he painted it, and then he wrote this shameful letter to his brother saying, "I'm, I'm so embarrassed <laughs> that I that I caved in to, you know, I feel like a sellout, like a capitulation to the marketplace." Yes, exactly, oh, wow. exactly. So to get to the point of the question that you're at, you're, you, you raised is, uh, you know, I'm, so I'm somebody who walks around armed with this information. You know, I can, I can be one of those, well, actually kind of guys when it comes to <laughs> Starry Night. So I went to the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York City, where that painting is housed. And uh, I went on a Tuesday morning so it wasn't super crowded but there was still a huge crowd and when people go to that museum that's the painting um Mm -hmm. you know that's that's that museum's mona lisa yeah and so um i went up to the painting and it was in the room and the docent was standing nearby um and i got a little friendly with the docent and said hey when the crowd disperses a little bit would it be okay with you if i got a little closer 
then the line so I could take some close-up photos. There are parts of the painting that I just wanted some really good close-ups of. And he said, sure, yeah, no, no problem. And then uh, and then after I did that, I kind of walked over to him and I said, I said, you know, he, he hated this painting. And the docent looked at me and he said, it's interesting, isn't it, how how an artist can be wrong about their own work? Mm. <laughs> mm. And I thought, ah, oh, that's not where this was supposed to go. You, <laughs> you, and yet, there, there's no other explanation for why people line up around around that floor of the museum to be able to stand in front of that painting. Mm. Nobody's telling them it's the one they got to go see. Um, but if people want to see Van Gogh, they want to see Starry Night, you know. And uh, even though he hated it, Michelangelo was the same way. Um, he was a perfectionist and he, he had good reason to be a perfectionist when it came to sculpture. Cause I think he was, he was the greatest that has ever walked the face of the earth when it comes to sculpting stone. Um, you know, when you do bronze or clay or whatever you you're adding to and taking away, but with marble, you're just subtracting. Yeah. And if you get it wrong, uh, there's, it's unforgiving, you know? <laughs> and so, so he produced David, uh, but he also produced a, um, uh, it's kind of a, Pieta, where it's it's uh, the body of Christ, but but he's um, he's being laid in the tomb by, by Joseph of Arimathea, and it's a it's a big sculpture, and um, but it's and it's amazing. Uh, but the calf legs of Jesus' uh, calves, um, his lower legs, are skinnier than Michelangelo wanted them to be, and so he destroyed the sculpture with a hammer. He broke it into like. <gasps> He broke it into like 13 pieces and somebody came along and gathered up the pieces and refit it back together. And so it's on display in some church. I think it's some church in in Italy uh, right now. And it's, it's of the nature that people would buy a plane ticket to go halfway around the world to just stand in front of that. Mm -hmm. But Michelangelo thought it was embarrassing, (laughs) you know? And so I take a lot of comfort in, in thinking, well, if, if Van Gogh was, could be so wrong about Starry Night, um, although he has, although I, I, it's not my favorite either um, of Van Gogh, but, it, but if he could, if he could feel that way about a painting that the world would come to revere and associate with, with brilliance on a level they hadn't seen in hundreds and hundreds of years from painters, uh, or if Michelangelo could, um, could be so displeased with this masterpiece of a sculpture that he destroyed it uh, with a hammer and it had to be reassembled by people who thought better of, of it than he did. Um, that's encouraging, right? <laughs> if, if we <laughs> yeah. feel like if we feel, I think it inspires me to say, maybe we don't need to be so critical about ourselves and about our work, because I think when we're being critical of our work, ultimately we're just being critical of ourselves. Mm. Right. And, and maybe robbing ourselves uh-huh. and, and, and others of something. Right. I mean, if, I mean, if he'd completely shattered that st- like statue to the work that it was no longer, you know, feasible to piece something back together or mm-hmm. Van Gogh had just shelved that painting and no one ever knew about it. Like, like, isn't there a part of this that's also like a gift unto others? Like the, mm-hmm. that, that your calling that, that, that what you have to present and call good is also intended to inform my calling 
and my ability to then produce something in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's the, that's one of the mysteries of art, right? Is the authorial intent. What does the artist intend? And the interpretation of the one who is, who is taking it in, you know, who, who's right. Um, yeah. That's one of the big debates, you know? And I think the answer has to be, well, well, both, because when you, it's, it's fair, like Rodin, um, his most famous sculpture is the thinker. Uh, and everybody, most people have seen the thinker. If I showed you a picture of it, you'd be like, oh yeah, of course. It's the guy, yeah. it's the guy sitting down. He's got his hand on his chin, his, his chin on his hand. Um, you know, and, and the question is, what's he thinking about? Is he having an existential crisis? Is he thinking about a lost love? Well, we know what he's thinking about because we know who he is because Rodin told us who he is. He's Dante. Uh, and he's thinking about, um, writing the Inferno. Uh, and that sculpture was intended to sit on a larger sculpture called the gates of hell, which is, which are these two huge bronze doors that have all these, um, sculptures of souls entering into torment, uh, as they're being dragged into the fires of hell and above the, those doors sits the thinker. And it's Dante thinking about that terrible work of trying to, um, trying to put to poetry, uh, the, the eternal damnation of the soul. Um, but that didn't stop us from putting the thinker on a toilet or putting headphones on him or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we still, we still take our, our liberties with, with, with that sort of thing. And part of that is because we're, because we understand, even if we don't really understand that it's Dante thinking about hell, we do know what it means to be um, bent over in thought uh, and, 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 burdened by um, the weight of decisions or confusion or uncertainty. And, and that's something that we relate to because that is inherently part of the sculpture. Um, Even though it's Dante writing the Inferno, that's what's on his mind, Um, you know, is, is the weight of, of the fragility and the brokenness of our world and the tragedy of it. Um, So, yeah. Um, I want to, Oh, go ahead. No, that's it. Well, I I wanted to circle back to uh, one more for you. I want to circle back to one thing you said earlier. You mentioned the word perfectionism when you were mm-hmm. talking about Michelangelo and and uh, you know the that like what word would you have for someone who wrestles with that? Like, of course, we want to pursue excellence, but it can be a law unto itself that we're trying to live up to. Like, like certainly that's not mm-hmm. part of what it means to create. That's not freedom. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I just wonder what word you'd have for someone there about like, what is that balance and, yeah. and what do we do with perfectionism? I think you got to be honest with the question. Wh- what are you after? Like, like wh- what, what would in your own uh, mind and heart constitute success? Would it be, um, a, a, a critically positive reception from the masses and would it be uh, commercial sales? Would it be, wh- what is it? What What is it that would make you, what are you trying to make it perfect for? You know, mm-hmm. um, because I- I'll tell you for, for me, I've, I've got a book coming out uh, next year, which is about art. Actually, it's an, it's a, um, it's a book about, 
some of these biographical sketches of artists that I've been talking about um, here. Hmm. And it's my fifth book. And so five books in, uh, what I've come to understand about myself is I don't know that I'll ever be a best-selling author. You know, I don't know that I'll ever be on a New York Times list. I don't know that I'll ever be um, book of the year. I don't, you know, like, and one book in that was, that was hard. Uh, it was hard to try to figure out like, okay, how do I know if it's doing well, if it, if it's not doing well? Now I kind of know generally if it follows the trend of the other books. I know that my life as a writer will probably be uh, of a nature where I'll, it'll be good enough that I'll be able to continue writing books. Um, but I'll, but I probably won't be able to put a kid through college with it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but, but that's liberating for me because, mm. because now it means, well, write what you want um, and developed in the craft of it, you know, like, it, like use the, use the opportunity to practice this craft, to do this thing that you love just for the sake of, of loving it and for the sake of trying to get better at it. Uh, but I think, you know, if we ask, if we're asking the question beneath the question of perfectionism is perfect for who successful by what measure, uh, what is it that we're, that we're really hoping is the fruit of our work? Um, I think that can be a clarifying thing. Uh, I have a friend in town here in Nashville. Who's uh, he's, his name's Tom Douglas and he's in the country music songwriting hall of fame. He wrote uh, a song called, he wrote the house that built me. Uh, that uh, uh, Miranda Lambert is famous for. Um, he's written a bunch of substantively deep country songs, uh, and he's really, really good at what he does. Uh, and he, one of the things he told me, we were having a conversation about just kind of the creative process. As he said, there's there's a part of the process that is sacred, and then there's a part where there's a point where it becomes profane. Um, and what he meant by that is he said, you know, when, when you're in the creation process, that's sacred. That's a sacred part of the process. The commercial part is where it gets profane, um, is where they take the work that you've made and now they turn it into a product to be distributed. And by profane, he doesn't mean it's like gross or terrible. He just means it's, it's not the, the sacred part is over, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, and if you're, you know, if you're wanting to be a successful artist who creates, who makes a living off of it, you, there's a part where you need to embrace the business end of it. You know, you need to embrace that. Okay. If you want to do this for a living, it has to make dollars and cents. Like, you know, you, you, you need people to be able to um, purchase it and want to purchase it and want to tell others about it uh, in order to, you know, take care of that end of things. But he said, don't ever, don't ever get don't don't sacrifice the sacred part of the process to the profane part of the process meaning don't don't engage the creative process in order to sell it engage the creative process in order to make it make what you want um and let the commercial part of the process if there happens to be one uh be the part that does the the shaping and the refining and the and the editing and modifying and that sort of thing um but but don't you know don't sit down to, to write a bestseller, sit, sit down to write a great book and then preserve that. And don't let the commercial part of it get in the way. Uh, I think that's good advice. Cause I think, I think we can, 
we can look at our art and our creativity and measure it by how it goes out then into the world and succeeds. And we can mistakenly think that that means it was good. When we know full well, there's a lot of things that go out into the world and succeed that aren't good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that aren't creatively good, substantively good, um, you know, uh, but they're popular. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Man, man, that's great. That's, uh, Russ, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and in your perspective. Just, um, I thought it was going to be great to talk to you about this and it was certainly right on. Hey man, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I love this podcast. I'm excited to, to listen to all of the episodes. Call It Good is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To listen to all the podcasts on our network, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcasts. The work we do at The Rabbit Room wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our membership. If you're a member, thank you for being a part of what is happening here. To learn more about membership and help us continue to create works like this, visit rabbitroom.com membership.